God, we just thank you for the chance to approach you. God, we thank you for the chance to sing to you and what a joy it is to sing. Um, Lord, to celebrate your word, to celebrate the gospel truth of family. Um, man, just, just hearing the song, this is how I know that I'm yours. This is how I know I'm secure. How, how insecure we are and how needy we are, how broken we are. Um, God, we just bring all of that to you, and we ask you to work, God. We ask you to use this time that we're going to spend opening up your word um, to convict us, to draw us, to help us to see the beauty of who you are. Um, Lord, re-envision us in such a way that we can run hard after you in the coming hours, in the coming day, in the coming week. Re-envision us, catalyze us, draw us together in such a way that we can be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Um, God, I pray for the preacher that you would that you would speak through my words in a way that goes beyond my preparation. God, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, direct my tongue. But Lord, I also pray that you would direct all of our hearts, Lord, to be receptive to your word. Help us to be humble. Uh, Lord, help us to be quick and eager to confess our sin. Um, Lord, help us to set our hope on the life that is truly life and run after you and let everything else that distracts us or discourages us fall away. Um, And Lord, at this early hour, make our hearts alert to accomplish all of it. Amen. All right. Um, this, this morning we're kicking off a new series in the book of Genesis called Origin Story. And um, it's, it's, it's a series about the God who created everything and who continues to recreate us um, both for his glory and for our good, okay? So again, a series about the God who created everything and who continues to recreate us for his glory and for our good. And this week, um, we're, we're going to go through Genesis pretty quick. Like, um, we're, over the next several weeks, we're just planning on covering the first five chapters. But like Genesis 1 and 2, there's something that we've come back to kind of again and again like in topical things because they're extremely foundational. And as we go through, like, I'm, I'm totally torn. Like, should we, like, spend a week on each day of creation? Should we, you know, lots of things. What we're going to do, we're covering the first six days, which is the first... Um, the first chapter, we're going to go through it kind of quick. Um, but in it, I basically want to draw out three big ideas this morning. Uh, first, I want to talk about how God is at the center. God is our source. God is our authority. God is the author. He is, he is the center and source of all of our lives, out of whom everything else flows. In the beginning, God. Okay. Um, second thing I want to talk about is God as our creator and our recreator. And um, the third thing I just want us to see is, as this chapter comes to the close, that, that both this week and next week, God is painting humanity as the pinnacle of his creation. And it's just a role that we need to reflect on, how God has made us and, and what God has made us for. Um, so that said, we're diving into it. Um, Genesis simply means beginning. Um, it's, you know, the, the Hebrew word that you'd go to for beginning. So when it says, in the beginning... We're talking about Genesis. It's the origin story. So Genesis 1.1, we read, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. You know, and, and honestly, that's, it's impossible to even visualize. Because, like, if, like if I want to 
you know, kind of erase everything else. And in the beginning, God, okay, it's like God on a white backdrop, okay? Um, But there is no white backdrop. You know, there is no time, there is no space, there is, there is nothing but God. In the beginning, God, God is where the story starts. So God is the origin, God is the center, God is the author of life, God is the authority in our life, God is, God is the frame of reference. It begins with him and ultimately the story is all about him. Um, now, one of the first controversies that we come to, we can't get really any further than this into the story uh, before, before it raises a question, well, how do we read Genesis 1? You know, is Genesis 1 uh, true and literal history? Okay, did God literally um, create everything out of nothing over the course of six 24-hour days? And, and I would say yes. That's, that's, that's what I believe. That's where my convictions are. Um, if that's not exactly where your convictions are, welcome to Mosaic church, okay? I, I mean, if you don't even believe that there is a God, welcome Mosaic Church. But, but on, on this issue, we just recognize that, um, that, that how you take the days of creation um, at its core is not really a gospel issue. Now, I think, I think if your worldview and, and, and how you sift all of that out, I think if you get rid of a literal Adam and Eve, um, Kind of as I read Romans, as I read Scripture, I'm not sure how you keep the entire gospel from unraveling at that point. Um, but what I want to recognize is that um, probably within this room, and, and certainly within the broader Christian community, there's, there's differing views on Genesis 1. And the reason that there's differing views is because all of us have to make interpretive decisions of where is the line, um, even, if, even if the lens through which we read scripture is extremely literal, we still have to figure out where do we draw the line between poetry and history? You know, what are the metaphors? So like, um, you turn to, to Judges chapter 5, and there's this, there's this epic battle um, where God delivers his people, and there's this, this woman, Deborah, who is, is part of leading that charge, and then she goes, you go into Deborah's song, and she talks about this epic battle victory in which God has supernaturally intervened to deliver his people. And she, she talks in one of the verses about how the stars came out of their courses and, and they fought for Israel. And I don't know anyone who reads that and hears that literally that, you know, Orion or the Big Dipper or whatever, you know, like the Big Dipper, it just kind of swung down there like a baseball bat and like white people out. Like, I don't think anyone's reading that way. So all of us, we have this interpretive decision to say, where is, where is the Bible using metaphor, using poetry, um, using um, beautiful imagery in order to get at a deeper truth? Um, but it's a metaphor, okay? And so some, some of you, some you know, faithful Christians throughout the centuries, um, even before like modern controversies about evolution or whatever, um, there's there've been faithful Christians who have looked at you know the the six days of creation and said, well, okay, clearly there's some deeper truths that God's getting at, and God is the creator, God is the author, um, you know. But did it is it is it a literal six days? I don't know. And so again, wherever you're at on that, um, welcome. Um, Again, I don't see it as a core gospel issue. Uh, I don't think any of our leaders see it as a core gospel issue. Again, at least for me personally, I haven't like 
checked with the guys. Um, I think if you, if you start to unravel Adam and Eve, then the whole, the whole thing falls apart. And what God has done and, and the fall and redemption and all of that. Um, but there's different theories out there of like um, um, a young earth or an old earth. Like is there a gap um, between Genesis 1 and, and Genesis 2? Like uh, it says um, God created the heavens and the earth and, and the earth was formless and void. Or like there's a little footnote in the NIV that says or, or the earth became formless and void. And so some are like, well, there was something and then there was something different and we don't really, I don't know, okay? Um, Personally, when I come to it, um, my conviction is that the most natural reading of Scripture is to just take it literally. I, I feel like when you're looking for metaphor, when you're looking, it is a poetic section, but when you're trying to, you know, going through the Psalms, going through the prophets, when you're, when you're trying to figure out, should I take this verbatim literally or should I hear it as a metaphor, there's just certain cues and you've got to sift through those things. Personally, as I read the text, um, I don't find compelling evidence to move away um, from six 24-hour days. And again, like we can debate that, and different people have different opinions. That's welcome. Um, I might rather talk to you about baseball than, than you know, debate like some of that stuff, but it's not a bad debate. Um, here's the one pushback that I would give. If you're in a place um, somewhere on the gradient of moving away from like a six literal days to you know, kind of wherever that is on the spectrum. Um, The one pushback that I would give is that I want all of us to come to Scripture and recognize, again, that God is the center. God is the source. and, And the Bible, Scripture, God's Word, that is where He has spoken authoritatively. So I never want you to come to anything in the Bible and say, well, I know it can't mean this because of that. I, I, I... I know, I, know, I know it can't be like a literal six days because I took a geology class in college and I know that the earth is older than that. Or I know, I know, um, you know God couldn't have, have, have literally made you know, kind of this way because, yeah, like, like I study biology and, you know, and, I, and I believe in macroevolution and, you know, all of that. Okay, maybe that, maybe that is where you stand. But I want to, the danger that I see in that I don't want your, your college geology teacher to be the one who speaks more authoritatively into your worldview than Scripture does. Okay? Um, how you meld science and Scripture, it's open for debate. Again, welcome. It's not, it's not a central issue. Okay? But it has really significant implications. So again, I never want you to come to, to Scripture and say, well, if, if you come to a certain passage of Scripture... And you say, well, I know it can't mean this because I want what follows the because to be another scripture, okay? Like, I I know I can't understand Isaiah this way because of what I read in Romans. You know, I, I know I can't understand Ephesians in this way because of what I read in John. Um, science is fickle. Science is changing, and we live in... And particularly on the Ann Arbor side of the tracks, we live in a society that loves science, that loves education, and, and hoorah, you know? Like, let's go get an education. There is, there is value there. You know, I don't want us to be um, the cliched stereotype of what the world sometimes 
believes us to be of those are the idiots that just turn off their brain and they go and they babble about some you know divine force or something like that okay um we want to embrace science but but i want us to understand that science is fickle you know science moves the scientific method is a beautiful thing but garbage in garbage out um you know for for if you roll back the clock 200 years, and some of you guys who are more students of history, maybe you'd, you'd put the number at a different spot, but you don't have to roll back the history of Western civilization and, and Western views of science. You don't have to roll that back very far before you get to the day where it would have been the, the near consensus of the scientific community that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the current consensus within the scientific community, and there really isn't a consensus, but like the prevailing idea, like within the university or whatever, is not in the beginning God, right? Okay? The, the prevailing consensus within you know, the universities and whatnot in our scientific community is that, that we are fully naturalists. We, we, you know, as a scientific community, there, there is not a broad embrace you know, in your high school science book, in your college science book, of the supernatural. So the assumption of, broadly speaking, that scientific community is to say there, there is no supernatural explanation, and so we need to come up with a natural explanation. And that's where we come up with the Big Bang, okay? 200 years ago, 300 years ago, the men and women who were making the discoveries and, and putting the equations together and figuring it out Galileo, whatever, they would look at that and, and say the Big Bang is nuts. You know, you, 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 don't, you don't get something out of nothing. But if, you're, if your scientific assumption, your starting point, is that there is no supernatural, then of course you're going to come to a conclusion that God did not create the heavens and the earth. Okay? But that's applying the, system, the, the scientific method to a certain assumption. Um, and again, science is fickle. It changes a bit based on what your assumptions are. And there's certain things that we discover, yeah, gravity is what it is, okay? We can map it, we can put an equation to it. Um, but again, roll back the clock 100 years. Science, or maybe you'd call it pseudoscience, it was a substantial basis for racism, okay? What was taught scientifically in our country was that certain races were superior to others, you know, that they were smarter, they were stronger, they were better, they were whatever. And it wasn't the science that was coming to that conclusion, it was the racist scientists that were coming to that conclusion, okay? And they're taking their assumption and then spending it out. So, so all that to say, um, science is great, go study, you know, whatever it is, get your degree, excel in it. Um, but man, do I want us to be a church and a people and individuals um, who would say, let God be true and every man a liar. The, the authority, the center, the source of my worldview is God as revealed in his word. Amen? All right, so that's, that's what we're getting after there. Um, and again, as I read scripture, study theology, um, get A's in science classes, those sorts of things, though not science classes that some of you guys have gone after, um, I see a literal six-day creation as the most natural reading of the text. Um, and I just want God to be at the center of our worldview. So um, when we move apart from that, um, when, when we say, um, 
well, I know, I know Scripture can't mean this because. In that moment, I think we're moving away from in the beginning, God. Okay? And we're moving towards, well, in the beginning, my geology professor. In the beginning, you know, whatever it be. Um, we want God to be the ultimate authority. We want God to be the center. We want God to be the source. We want, um, yeah, we want him to be the authority in our lives. So the source is center, the authority. God is the origin of our origin story. Second point, um, the next thing we see is that, that we see God as our creator and our recreator. Um, there is this loop that goes through where God creates something and then he makes it better. Um, he forms it. Um, and then he fills it. And, and this pattern that we see even in the days of creation, we see that, we see that expand out from Genesis 1 in, into the entire world. We see, um, uh, we see not only that, that like God makes light and he separates light from darkness and then he circles back a few days later and he makes the sun and the moon and the stars and kind of gives particular form to that light. Like that's one of the ways that he does that. But um, man, we, we see this right down through history and right through the gospel. You know, God makes this perfect world. And what does he say to the man and woman that he puts in it? He says, he says, create and cultivate, rule over it, subdue it, till the garden, make ultimately what we see the trajectory of scripture. It isn't quite as explicit there, but, but what's laying out there, it's what theologians call the cultural mandate. You're taking this beautiful garden and you're turning it into a city. And not like an urban jungle, all this concrete, but we're thinking like Central Park kind of city, you know, where, where you've got this, this beautiful epic park where people get out into nature and they can see the glory of God. And then you, like, you, you turn around and there's these amazing architectural masterpieces where you see the image bearers of God, that they have taken the creativity that God has given them, and they've made something marvelous as well. And both give you an opportunity to give glory to God. Okay, in the gospel, we see this reality that God made a perfect world. And in his sovereign plan, he allowed it to fall into sin, knowing that on the other side of the cross, he was going to have an even more magnificent and glorious and perfect world. God is continually creating and recreating. God is continually taking something, he makes it, and he says, wow, this is good. And then he says, and I'm going to make it better. And I'm going to use my people to make it better. And that's kind of this trajectory of um, creation and recreation that we see. And I just want to kind of run through it. We're going to quickly move through the entire chapter and just see this stuff fleshed out. So verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. The old translation's formless and void. That's how I want to complete it because that, that like King James language is like made it into our culture and Christian subculture, all that stuff. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So first God created the world in a basic sense. Um, he created time, he created matter, he created energy. But the, the creation lacked form and content. Everything was dark. God created, but then the story continues and God recreates. God makes his good even better. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. 
God spoke and light existed. God spoke and his good creation became better. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. What even was light and darkness before he separated them? I don't know. God called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And again, like some would come to this and say, well, wait a minute, the sun doesn't get created until... Um, until day four, so clearly it can't be 24-hour days. And I'm like, again, like, I, to me, whatever your arguments are, welcome, but to me, is a day. That's what he said. Let's, let's go with that. Um, verse six, and God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made an expanse to separate the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So God continues to separate and to distinguish, to form and to fill. Verse 9, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, trees bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And again, I want us, I want us to pick up on this pattern of creation and recreation, forming and filling, making something that's awesome and making it even better. And then, I, like, like even this metaphor that, that he goes into and he just really pounds in, in day three about, about the seed. Like if you're, like this, this, was, this was like written by Moses after Adam, you know, whatever. But, but if you're Adam and you're, you're hearing this, like, I'd be like, I wonder why God is like pounding the seed metaphor so much. Why, why, it's not even a metaphor, but why, why pounding the seed? And it's because I think in the future he is going to use seed as a metaphor. Like, you know, last week, like Rob's preaching on the mustard seed. You know, Jesus goes back to this seed again and again and again. That you, you take this, this tiny little mustard seed. And like Rob, if you were here, God, he, Rob gave us uh, mustard seeds last week. And I kept mine through like the first 60% of the message. And then he was telling us to look at it every time. And I looked and eventually I dropped mine and it was... I was so sad that they weren't like continually passing the mustard seed container around because I needed one back. Okay, but it's this amazing illustration of, of this tiny little seed that it grows up and it becomes this amazing plant in which the birds of the air can nest. Okay, and, and among other things, it's a picture of the life that God wants us to create. And again, there's, there's all of these biological metaphors. He talks about, you know, the, the godly man as, as the one who's, who's like a tree planted beside streams of water. Okay, and he gets all the water that he needs and all the nutrients that he needs. And, and, and by staying close to God and staying close to his word, he just grows up into this mighty tree. And again, like mixing the metaphors to the, um, to the mustard tree and whatnot, this tree in which the birds of the air can come and nest. You know, God pictures us as this tiny, pathetic, little, little almost nothing that, that you have to be careful to hold between your fingers. You know, a little bigger than a grain of sand. You've got to be careful lest you drop it. But he says, I, I want to grow you. I want to develop you. I want to make you into something that, that, that can not only be beautiful to the glory of God, but that can be a blessing to the entire world around you. You know, that's, 
that's ridiculous. That's bonkers. He, he says again and again, um, you know, the seed that produces, the, the tree that makes the seed that produces according to its kind. You know, like the, um, the acorn, it makes the oak tree that makes other acorns. And again, we're going to see this cascade throughout creation. We're going to see creation and recreation. We're going to see creation and procreation. It's not, it's not humanity first, you know, that, that God gives this capacity to, to recreate in their own image, but he just weaves that through the entirety of his creation. And again, it's a metaphor that he comes back to. And it's like this beautiful image of discipleship. Like we're created in the image of God and we're to fill the earth with the image of God. Okay, that we would reflect his glory, that we would reflect his character, his values, his morality, um, his creativity, his power, his, his reign, all of these things that we would reflect it. When we make disciples, we reproduce after our own kind. You know, when we, when we, br- when we do child dedications, when we bring them up, what is the hope? The hope is that the same faith and love and joy in Christ that John and Jillian share that their kids would come to share. And again, God, God weaves this into the story of creation and he pounds it and pounds it and pounds it. It's just this beauty of reproduction. Verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. To govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And again, in this, he circles back. He takes what he created on day one, and he recreates it. He forms and he fills. He, 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 he takes light and darkness, which he is, he's made out of nothing. Even darkness did not exist. Okay, unless you just say, well, it's the absence of light, and light didn't exist. Okay, whatever. Again, I'm rubbing against maybe the scientific community a little bit. Um, but, but he takes something kind of general and abstract that he has made, and, and he makes it particular. You know, he makes it into the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they, and they have these functions. And, and again, like he uses this language of, you know, the, the sun and the moon, they're going to rule over the day and the night. And again, there's, um, this, this passage is rich with metaphor. That, that points forward, and nobody's going to deny that. And, and I also believe that it's, it's rich with literal. You know, but I believe these metaphors, they, they foreshadow the gospel. Again, that God made this perfect world. He allowed sin to come into the world because he knew that on the other side of that, on the other side of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place for our sin, in order that we could be reconciled to God, he understood that on the other side of the gospel, we were going to have a world that was even more beautiful and that would more fully <laughs> reflect the glory of God. Like, imagine you, 
imagine you make the most perfect stained glass kind of mural, you know, for your church or cathedral or whatever you've got. And everyone looks at it and says, wow, that is perfect. That is the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen. That is the Garden of Eden. That is what God created. And yet in the sovereign plan of God, he takes this ridiculously beautiful masterpiece and he allows his enemy to smash it. Because he knows that he's going to make it into an even more beautiful mosaic. And for all eternity, his people are going to look back and say, wow, I never could have imagined that, but that is even better. That is our God. That's amazing. And that is the pattern that we see again and again. God is our creator and our recreator. The one who forms and fills us with life. Even as he both forms and fills all of the creation with life as we continue to see in the story. Verse 20. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Again, this this beautiful theme. It's not just, and God made a few fish and he put them in there and eventually they multiplied. It's, it's, It's this vibrant, flowing, roaring picture, not only of waters of rivers, but roaring life. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Let, let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created um, the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds. Again, we come back to that again and again. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and he said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the water and the seas, let the birds increase on the earth, and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So again, these themes again and again, according to their kind, reproduction, filling the earth, subduing the earth, um, filling the earth with the glory of God. Verse 24, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. So up to this point, we've seen the God who is in the beginning, the God who is the source, the God who is the center, the God who is the author of life, the God who is the final and ultimate authority, the God who is the origin of our origin story. Next, Kind of point two, um, we see the God who creates and recreates. We see that the good gets better. We see that God made a perfect world, and then he ultimately turns it into a better world through the gospel. We see, um, we're beginning to see like the rule and reign of God. And as we transition into day six and, and deeper into day six, and we see humanity as the pinnacle of creation, we're going to see this emphasis on God's rule and reign and how he commands us to rule and reign in his said. We're going to see his love and his service. We're going to see this command um, to, to fill and subdue, um, to create and to cultivate. God creates humanity as, as the pinnacle of his creation. That's kind of what we have left in the little bit we're going to cover. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man. And um, the word man, Adam, dirt, ground, mankind, it's got a wide field of meaning. So um, when he says it here, I think most commentators, most scholars would agree, let us make man, um, it's a reference to humanity. 
and probably the more updated Bibles, and, and as our culture moves in that direction, more gender-neutral language, it's just going to say humanity. Let us make mankind. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Again, God is sovereign. God rules. God reigns. And yet, he's, he's going to make us in his image to rule and to reign. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Uh, a couple other things you see in here. He says, let us make man in our image and our likeness. You've got God speaking in the plural. Now, again, there's so many controversies in Genesis. And some would say, um, well, it's like a, um, I forget what you call it, but like a, like a, divine, a divine plural, um, a majestic plural. Um, it'd be like, um, you know, if, if I, like when we were getting ready to start a, start a church, and I'd say, we're going we're gonna to plant a church. And people would be like, who's we? Well, I mean, like me and my wife and my two kids who were like, you know, smaller than the kids that we had up here the other day. You know, like sometimes we use, we use the plural when we mean the singular. And some would say that's what's going on here. But again, I think the, the natural reading of this is that God's like putting in a little Easter egg there of the Trinity. Just like in the beginning, um, like the, the first couple of verses, we're, we're talking about in the beginning, God created, and then it says, and the Spirit of God was over the face of the deep. And this, this theme of the Spirit of God, it gets like sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, but it really doesn't get developed until later. And then you look back later, and, and like um, Colossians and different things, they're talking about Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, being, being the one among the Godhead doing the creation. And you're like, oh, well, how does it all fit together? But but again, as I read this, I think that this is the Easter egg. This is, this is the hidden um, indication that it is a triune God. And, and if it isn't that, then it, it gets increasingly confusing, like in what sense are we made in the image of God? And again, there's a lot of debate, what does the image of God mean? And, and part of why there's debate is because there's such breadth of what that could mean. Um, the intellectual image of God, the creative image of God, the moral image of God. There's so many ways that we reflect him, but I would say one of the most beautiful ways that we reflect him and that seems to be emphasized in this passage is we reflect the communal nature of God. That we serve a God who is profoundly relational. And he's, he's relational because he eternally exists in Trinity. You know, God did not create man out of his loneliness because he needed somebody to talk to. God, God said, let us make man in our image, out of the divine counsel, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reflecting on the love that they shared amongst themselves and, and sharing and multiplying that love among the creation, okay? We, so again, we reflect, we reflect the image of God in so many ways. Um, then God said, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So in the Trinity, we see plurality, um, plurality, I'm sorry, but we also see unity in the midst of that plurality. One God eternally existing in three persons. And part of the reason that he creates humanity the way that he does is so that even in male and female, and, and this kind of moves into marriage, and in the passage we'll look at next week in chapter 2, we're going to see that developed more and more. 
Um, but this, this picture that he moves to by the end of chapter 2 where he, he, he talks about Adam and Eve, man and woman, and he says, and for this reason, um, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Again, I think it's one of the ways that God designed humanity to reflect his, his communal Trinitarian nature. Okay, that, that three persons eternally exist as one God. And likewise, in marriage, two distinct persons, they, they come together and they share one life. And, and, you know, if you've been married, you know that sometimes that like goes well and it's beautifully and you're like, yes, metaphor of the gospel. And sometimes you're like, wow, nobody would get the gospel out of what we're doing here right now. Okay? But, but, but that is what God designed marriage to be, that, that we would be this 24-7 living, breathing billboard of both the communal nature of our God existing, you know, as Trinity, as well as this beautiful 24-7 living, breathing billboard of the gospel, of the God who from this moment forward in scripture is going to portray himself as the husband, and he's going to portray his people, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, as his bride the one that he woos and pursues and suffers for and serves and shapes and cleans and redeems. It's, it's this beautiful image, and that is what our marriages are supposed to point to. You know, that, that we would clarify the gospel for each other and for the onlooking world. Amen? What a beautiful thing to aspire to. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I want us to see that it's both man and woman that are created in the image of God. Okay? We co-equally share the image of our God, all of the dignity that comes with it, all of the glory that comes with it, all of the equality that comes with it. That's deeply rooted in Scripture. And yet there's also a differentiation. And, and you know, God, God makes distinct male from female. And again, we live in a culture that's really muddying that and blurring that. And as we come to those issues, you know, we're going to come with our own baggage. We're going to come with our own pain. We're going to come with the pain that the people in our households that we love are wrestling with. But we want to be the people who come drinking deeply of the authority of God and the authority of his word. And when we begin to speak about gender and when we begin to teach about gender, I think one of the ways that the church has historically struggled is that um, each of us as individuals has our concept of gender deeply shaped by culture. You know, And so sometimes um, the church is just a loud megaphone saying whatever the, whatever the culture says about gender. You know, and the conservative church is saying, you know, kind of what the culture used to think about gender, and the and the progressive church is saying, you know, what the new cutting edge of the culture says about gender. Um, so it can get confusing, and yet, what I think is undeniable as we take God at His word in Scripture, is that gender does exist, and that it's binary. Okay, that that God created the male and female, and as much as um, you know, there's like a spectrum of personality and, and so many factors that we could get into. 
there is something beautiful in the divine order that God has given us in gender. And as the people of God who take, who take him at his word, we should be seeking to understand that. Um, Elizabeth Elliot, she wrote a book. I don't, I don't know that it would be popular today. Um, I haven't read it all the way through, but um, her, her book title is Let Me Be a Woman. And I think basically the, it's, it's a compilation of letters that she wrote to her daughter as her daughter was approaching marriage. Um, but I think the, the gist of it and the major metaphor behind the title is that you look in the story of creation and the created order of the world and everything in, everything in creation, God calls it into being and in its essence, it says, yes, Lord, let me be what you made me to be. You know, um, the oak tree. Yes, it doesn't, it doesn't verbalize like you do. It doesn't think like you do. But God says, be an oak tree. And it's like, yeah, I'm an oak tree. Look at, look at how majestic, you know, I can be for the glory of God. Um, the lion, God creates the lion and it roars to the glory of God. You know, God creates the lamb and whatever noise a lamb makes, it does it to the glory of God. And what she says in that book and what she tries to communicate to her daughter is, hey, culture is going to tell you a thousand different things about what it means to be a woman. You know, you're going to come with your own preconceived ideas. Your, your husband's going to come with his own preconceived ideas. But, but let's be the people who go back to Scripture and say, God, I want you to inform what this word means. And if this is what you have created me to be, then I want to be this to the fullest, to the glory of God, and joyfully so. You know, that, that women would say, let me be a woman. That men would say, let me be a man. And again, that in that, we wouldn't bring the cultural stereotypes that, well, men are angry and abusive, so I'm going to be angry and abusive, you know? Or, you know, men are taller and bigger and stronger, and I can dominate, so I'm going to dominate. But that we would look to Scripture and say, what kind of manhood does, does God paint a picture of? You know, this, this radical servant leadership, you know, where, where, where God says, you know, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, so, so what's the clearest picture that we get of, of manhood in Scripture? If we're, if we're going to something like that, it's Christ on the cross saying somebody is going to have to suffer in order that others might be blessed. Someone is going to have to die in order that others might live. You know, and to the men, as we lead, as we lead our marriages, as we lead our homes, he says, you're going to be the one who has to lead in dying. You know, and elsewhere he gives that call to both the man and the woman, you know, like submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And, and you know, the same call that he gives to all of his disciples repeatedly in the Gospels, one iteration or another of, of die to live. Lay down your life in order that someone else may live. Unless this, this kernel of corn falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if, it, but if it falls to the ground and dies, it's, it's, if it's planted in the ground, it's going to become something more beautiful. Okay, it's, 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 it's going to fill the world with seeds. It's going to be like that mustard seed that grows up in such a way that the birds of the air can nest in it and bless. And again, what does he say to the man? He says, even as I've called all of my people to lay down their lives in order that other people might live, in order that other people might thrive, Here's what I want you to do as the man, as the head of the home. I want you to lead in dying. 
You know, when you have conflict, I want you to lead in resolution. You know, when, when, when somebody has to suffer, when somebody has to take the short end of the straw, that's how you lead. I don't know anyone in the world that looks at men leading and serving in that way and says, okay, that's misogynistic, that's bad. Everybody wants that because it's beautiful to the glory of God, amen? But in all of this, men and women, whatever roles we have in society, however God has made us in all the things that God has called us to, let us be the people who say, yes, Lord, amen. Whatever you call me to, this is who I want to be. And this, this, is, this is how I want to be, okay? All that to say, man and woman, co-equally created in the image of God, and yet mysteriously differentiated for the glory of God. And we could spend the rest of our lives trying to plumb the depths of, of the beauty of his design in that. And we should. So both man and woman are created in the image of God. Both reflect his glory. Both display his nature. And there's a sense in which everything that we've talked about in this, everything that he's created also does that. Like Psalm 19 begins, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. So there's a certain sense in which all of creation displays the glory of God by its very existence, and yet there's a sense in which there's a sense in which humanity does so uniquely. All of creation displays the wisdom and creativity and power and sovereignty of God. And yet humanity together, in the beauty and complexity of of our diversity and of the differentiation of our gender and all of these things, that there is a way in which we uniquely bear his image and thus we can uniquely declare his glory in a way that nothing else can. And it's in this sense that humanity is the pinnacle of creation. That's why humanity is created last, because it has this purpose. And again, um, God can use marriage, God can use singleness. Like you could, if you're wondering, if I'm talking about marriage, you're like, well, what about singles? Go um, Go to 1 Corinthians 7, read that this afternoon, and see how... Um, how God desires to use singleness and say, wow, look at how laser-focused you can be on pursuing me and pursuing my glory and, and multiplying that because you're not distracted by, by what your spouse wants or you know, by the fact that your kids are out of Cheerios and they, they need something else to eat. You know? So like, God can use marriage or singleness or whatever, and there's, there's beauty in both. Um, but again, I think what he's emphasizing here is that, that in the unity of man and woman together, that complex complementary, nobody ever would have saw it coming, beauty of the two that are unlike coming together and becoming one. There's um, that unity uh, is a profound display of the Trinity and that that diversity um, and the unlike coming together is a profound picture of worship and the gospel. That God is like the great bridegroom and that his people, the church, us, are the bride. Okay? And, and we see that. Verse 28. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. 
God says, rule as I have ruled, fill as I have filled, be fruitful as I am fruitful in the creation, subdue. In other words, um, again, like scholars, theologians, they've taken this idea of be fruitful and subdue, and the words that they've put to it are create and cultivate. So God says to, to Adam and Eve, create and cultivate, even as I have created and cultivated. Take this perfect garden and make it even better. Verse 29, then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has a breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Again, what have we seen today? We've seen that God, God is a good creator. Um, and as much as Genesis 1 within Christian communities has become like something to fight about and something to argue about in terms of our different views of literal or metaphorical and whatever, at the core of Genesis 1 is this, this God who is at the center, this God who is the source, this God who is the author of life, this God who is the final authority, to sum it up in four words, in the beginning, God. That is the essence of what we see in this chapter. Um, second point we've seen today, um, we see a God who creates and recreates, who, who forms and who fills, who takes perfect and makes it even more perfect and who has placed in us this similar ability to create, um, to take raw materials and to harness them into something more beautiful. And it's, it's amazing to take, to take the beauty and make it more beautiful, to make the, take the good and make it better. And as he invites us to do the same, we're ultimately reflecting who he is. You know, as men and women created in his image, we're, we're reflecting his intellect, we're reflecting his creativity, we're reflecting his power, we're reflecting his, his ability to rule and subdue, and he wants us to get to know him so that we can do so more fully to his glory. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, I just thank you for the chance to, to be in your word, to enjoy it, um, to celebrate, again, who you are and what you've done. Um, God, help us to be a people who savor you. Help us to be a people who look to you. Help us to be a people who see you as our authority and, and who rejoice that you are. Amen.